Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. They knew that that night wouldn't end well. The authorities wanted the blasphemer dead. So every action, every encounter, every step that they made was going to be critical. When he finds himself behind enemy lines, when he finds himself in their camp, and when they start questioning him, asking him what he saw, what he heard, the answers that he'd already planned out to give are far different than what he actually says. And it's always been one of those scenes where we go, well, how could he do that? And yet you have to actually put yourself there in his shoes. I have no idea how I would respond given the situation. We got to go back to that night. We got to go back to those moments. We've got to go back to a real life and death situation. His life is on the line. And the answer to three questions that were going to determine whether he walked out of there or not. And you've got to ask yourself, what would you do? We're studying the book of 1 Peter, but we're going to actually start this morning in the book of Mark in the 14th chapter, verse 66 this week. And I want to set the scene a little bit more for you here. This is the end of the story. It's been three years, three years of the life of Jesus, three years of him calling his disciples, some tax collectors, some fishermen, average guys simply leaving their jobs and following him. Three years of miracles, three years of preaching. The crowd is now split at this point. Some believe that he's God come in the flesh to the earth. Others believe that the claims he is making are blasphemous and they hate him. No matter which side of the line that you're on, you see the tension building. You see the religious leaders are are on the side that that hate this blasphemy. They hate the fact that he continually says that, that he's God, that God is his father. He continually says that no one gets to the father, no one gets to heaven except through him. He continually says that it is he by which all men and women will be judged. The audacious claims of Jesus are on the page after page after page, and the crowd has to decide, is he God, like he claims to be, or is he an arrogant fool who needs to be shut up? And on the road to Jerusalem, Jesus had told his disciples many times over, I'm not going to walk out of this city alive. Make no mistake in the arguments of who killed Jesus. Did the Jews kill Jesus? Did the Romans kill Jesus? Jesus gave his life up willingly. Jesus knew what he was all about, what he was doing, and ultimately he was calling the shots here. And he's already told his group, his band of followers, I'm going to be murdered in Jerusalem. And he told them how it was going to go down. He said that he'd be handed over. He said that he would be mocked, that he would be beaten, that he'd be crucified. And he said, three days later, I'm going to rise again. Well, that night, the tension in the city is high. Peter's already sworn, if they come for you, Jesus, I'm going to die with you. And so it happens in the garden by torchlight. Jesus had asked the boys to pray with him there. 
He begged God not to go through with the plan if there was any other way that it could be done. And God said, son, this is what it's all about. This is what it's been about. And when the torches of the soldiers come into the garden, the disciples run. They hightail it out of there. And Peter finds himself somewhere in the darkness, somewhere in the thicket, somewhere up against a boulder with his chest heaving, breathing heavily, running for his life, and he realizes, I just did the very thing that I said I would never do. I ran away from Jesus at his time of greatest need. He knows that it's life and death. He's talked himself through going back, and he's probably already gone through all the answers. Well, when they capture me and they, they bring me up next to Jesus, uh, when I'm side by side standing there in, in, front of the, in front of the officials, and they ask me, what am I going to tell them? I'm going to say he's the son of God. I'm going to tell them that I've seen the miracles, that I believe in him. You see, I think Peter's ready to die for Jesus. But he's about to be questioned by the most unlikely of people, someone he didn't prepare for in Mark chapter 14. It says, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, she said, but he denied it. He said, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And then he walked out through the entryway. Jesus was undergoing a mock trial at the time in the dead of night, in the dark of the morning. He's claiming to be God, and they're, they're beating him, they're mocking him, they're blindfolding him and saying, okay, prophesy who's hitting you right now, king. And then the servant girl sees Peter again and says to those standing around, she says, this fellow's one of them. And again, Peter denied it. And after a while, those standing near said to Peter, well, surely you're one of them. You're a Galilean. You see, his speech, his, his dialect, his, his accent must have given him away. They said, you sound like one of those hill folk from up by the lake. And he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore that he didn't even know Jesus. I don't know this man that you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered the words that Jesus had said prior to that, that evening. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me, not once, not twice, but three times. And he broke down and wept. So Peter walks out of the scene, and I'm, I'm sure Peter realizes that there's a special place in hell for people like him. When Jesus is being beaten, mocked, whipped, his flesh laid open, and you've walked with him for three years, and you've come down this very scene just to call down curses and say you don't even know the guy, that's the ultimate betrayal. And so Peter exits into darkness. To his astonishment, three days later, Easter comes. The tomb is open. The tomb is empty. The women go in the morning and, and, and find the stone rolled away, and the angels say, go tell the disciples and Peter. Jesus wants to see him again, the only one mentioned by name. And he will get a second shot at this. He will spend 40 days walking with the resurrected Jesus, 40 days with the Jesus that now has scars in his hands and on his feet, 40 days of everything falling into place and clicking. 
40 days of one-on-one. And then on that fateful day on the beach, Jesus says, come over here, Peter. I want to talk to you. I got three questions for you. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because a few nights ago, you messed up. You messed up. You messed up. And I want you to know we're good. We're good. And that night, I think, causes Peter's pen to tremble a bit when 30 years later, he writes us a letter. And he's going to give us a step-by-step of what to do if your life is ever questioned about Christianity. And you have to know who's writing it. You have to understand who's behind that pen. He's about to tell us what to do if we're ever questioned. He says, don't do what I did. I blew it. No one else denied Jesus the moment that he's being beaten to death, denied him with curses three times. He lost his shot at it, and yet Jesus by name invited him back in. And for 30 years now, Peter's been living it out. For 30 years, he can't keep his mouth shut. For 30 years, he's answered the questions before they're even asked. I put in your life notes there, learning from Peter's perjury, because I think that's what he did that night. He might not have been the one on trial, but he was there in the courtyard. He was the one being questioned, and he was the one lying about whom Jesus was to him. Underneath there in your notes, I wrote Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, and it goes on and on. You see, there's four books that that tell the life and story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then there's Acts, short for the actions of the apostles. And Peter becomes the main character in the first part of that book. In chapter 2, Pentecost comes, and everyone in Jerusalem is like, what in the world is going on with these guys? Some of the crowd goes, they're speaking in my native language and tongue, and I'm hearing the Jesus story. And all the visitors of Jerusalem are hearing the Jesus story in their own language through disciples who have never spoken those languages before. It's a crazy phenomenon. Most of the crowd think these guys are just drunk. Everyone's bewildered. Someone needs to, needs, to, needs to answer a question, and Peter stands up. He's blown this before. He's not about to do it again. And he goes, hey, everyone, listen up. It's 9 in the morning. These guys aren't drunk. Let me tell you what's happening. And he goes back to the Old Testament. He talks about how God and the prophet Joel said, on that day, God will pour out his spirit upon men and women. He goes, this is the Spirit of God working right now. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy from Joel. And then he does an entire chapter from the Old Testament to his life and who Jesus is and why you killed him and why you better get it straight this time, just like Peter's going to get it straight this time. And at the end of the message, 3,000 people in Jerusalem that day said, I want to become a follower of this Jesus, and were baptized. In the very next chapter, chapter 4, Peter and John are walking in the temple. They see a crippled man. He's asking for any coins, silver. You know, he'll take anything negotiable, you know, credit cards. He'll, he'll take it. And they stop and they say, we don't have money, but what we do have, we'll give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And the guy stood up and he walked. And the next thing you know, he's singing and he's dancing through the temple. And the whole church is like, whoa. That's the crippled dude that we see sitting there every day begging. 
And everyone comes to Peter and John, and they have questions. And, and Peter silences them, and he says, hey, don't look at us as if we've done anything. Let me tell you about the Jesus that you guys killed. And you could hear a pin drop. And so many people that day realized who this God was. Well, then Peter gets put in prison. He gets called before the Jewish leaders and the high court. And every time he's called on, he goes, let me give you the answer. Let me tell you the answer to the question you're wanting to know. I screwed this one up in front of the servant girl twice and in front of the guys in the courtyard. I'm not screwing this up again. Let me tell you about the man that was killed on Calvary. And he becomes the spokesperson in the book of Acts. The very guy that walked away knowing that there's a special place in hell for people like him. Now, 30 years later, he's in his old age, and he wants to put it down in writing. He wants to encourage a church that's gone through persecution to spread out all over Asia Minor. And he leaves a letter to them and to us, the church. He says, here's what to do if you're ever in a situation where people ask, and now you know who's writing it. And I think the depth and meaning of these four verses we're going to look at today will be richer for you for knowing that. He starts off in verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. And that's an illusion. That's a, that's a quote from Isaiah 8, which I read at the beginning of the service. And if you're just joining us, we're 11 weeks into a study of the book of 1 Peter. And he just finished saying over the last few weeks, look, following God, understanding who God is and what he wants us to do with, wants to do with sinners like us, in spite of us, is amazing. It's going to change your life. It's going to change your marriage. It's going to change the way you do church. And now he stops looking back and he says, by the way, really? What harm's going to come to you if you're, if you're living a good life, a great life? He says, just think about it. If you're truly following Christ and, and living and loving people and being generous and compassionate, what kind of enemies are you really going to have? But then it hits him. We live in a really messed up world. It hits him. He's been in prison numerous times by this time just for following Jesus. It hits him. Some of you, some of the people he's writing to, have family members, co-workers, a boss, a supervisor, an ex. Some of you have neighbors. Some of you have people. And, and they've just made it your, their goal in life to make you miserable because of your faith. So it hits him. Following the life and teachings of Jesus, what kind of enemies are you really going to have? But if you should suffer, consider yourself blessed. Because my bet is, Jesus suffered a whole lot more than anything you will ever suffer for your faith. And if you're questioned, if you're questioned, here it goes, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Number one, when our lives are on trial, write this down in your life notes, make sure that Jesus is the center of your life. Make sure that Jesus is the center of your life. If our life is on trial and we're ever asked, we need to make sure of that. Now, here's my problem with that. You go to church and someone says, hey, do you believe in God? Oh, yeah, I believe in God. Do you believe Jesus is God? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then we're good. Well, no, no, no. That's not it. We're not good. 
The Bible is not saying believe Jesus is God. The Bible is not saying, Peter's not saying believe in God. The book of James says even the demons believe. They believe in God and what? They shudder. And I don't think there's going to be demons in heaven. That's not what they're talking about here. Peter's not challenging us to believe in God. He's not saying, hey, I believe that Jesus is God. In fact, I wrote it there beneath there in your notes. There's a huge difference between believing in God and having a Lord. Peter says, here's the thing you got to understand. It's very basic in Christianity, is that you set apart in your hearts Jesus as Lord. I want to explain that. I think we've lost something in the, in the terminology because we don't have a, a lordship system. We don't have something to, to, to look at and compare this to today. You have to go back to the days of, of feudalism. You have to go back to the days where if you were a servant, someone else owned the land that you lived on. A lord owned the land. The lord owned the property. You were allowed to work it. You were allowed to plow it. You were allowed to have livestock on it. But make no doubt about it, someone else owned you and all that there was. You had to swear allegiance as a vassal to your Lord. And Christianity took that term of, of ultimate relationship, ultimate ownership, and they brought it into what was happening, saying it's not just ownership. When Jesus is Lord, he has absolute authority. He is sovereign. He's got exclusive jurisdiction to all that we are, all that we have. And this is far, far different than saying, oh, I believe in God. I believe Jesus is God. Peter says, I don't care if you believe Jesus is God. Have you set him apart as Lord? Have you set apart Jesus Christ and his words to have absolute exclusive authority and ownership of every aspect of your life. Never to be challenged, never to be denied, never to be questioned, ever rebutted. Absolute sovereignty. We don't like that in our Western civilization for someone to have absolute so sovereignty over us. But he is Lord. He's set apart from everything, from who I am, from, from what I do, to what I speak, to my money, to my job, to my talents, because I realize it's all his. I'm allowed to manage a very small piece of the Lord's kingdom. He's allowing me to squat on it, if you will. That's a Lord. You see, Jesus didn't die on the cross to become God. He was already God. He didn't die on the cross so that we would believe in him. He died on the cross to pay for our sin, to buy me back so that he can have 100% complete ownership of me, full title, authority, exclusive rights to everything that is Walt. He died to own me, lock, stock, and barrel. And a Lord isn't a part of your life. If a Lord is a part of your life, then he's not a Lord, because the Lord is, is, is over. He said over all of life. And what Peter's been doing for three chapters is bringing us to the point where he can say, make sure in your hearts that Jesus is set apart as Lord. Is there an action, is there an attitude, a behavior, a relationship in your life where he's not Lord? Because if he's not Lord of areas of your life, then he's not Lord of your life. He may be governor of a couple of districts of your life, but that's not what he died for. He died for ownership. Not that I have to be perfect. He doesn't want my perfection, but he wants the direction of my life and yours. So that we go, God, everything you say and are, 
you are Lord, and I yield to it, especially in the areas that I don't think make sense or I don't like or that I disagree with. And trust me, there may be plenty. Those are areas where I say you're Lord, and I manage it, and it's your life, and here we go. Peter jumps into it. I want to read to you from Luke 9th chapter. Jesus said it this way to a crowd that was following him. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Jesus is saying, look, this isn't just saying a prayer when you were six years old. This wasn't when you were at junior high camp or at the Indian village and your counselor led you to say a prayer to believe in God. Those are great. Those are great. That's part of it. It wasn't something your mom and dad had you recite when you were five years old because that was a great start. That was a great beginning. He says this is a daily. Not did you ever say a prayer. Not did you believe in God. Are you daily picking up your cross and following me, which is an act of surrender. It means that someone else owns you. No one picks up a cross on their own, so you're under someone else's authority. You die to self, and there's a cross daily where I have to get rid of Walt in order to follow Christ. And then he gives that warning, but if you're ashamed of me and my words, don't be surprised when I return that you're not a part of this. I will be ashamed of you and the life you've lived. And I get to these sayings like this of Jesus and go, man, that's so audacious. That's so, so arrogant. At times it seems like he asks so much. And yet when I put it down into human relationships, it makes so much sense to me. Last August was Lou and my 40th wedding anniversary. And we were supposed to go to Hawaii, but COVID nixed that. So we went back to Columbus, Ohio, where it all started. Our daughter Julia had some lays from, mailed from Hawaii to her aunt and uncle who met us at the airport. And this photo was taken on our anniversary in front of the store where we met back in August of 1977. We were also able to go by the, by the church where we were married that day on our anniversary. What if for the past 40 years I never mentioned Lou to anybody? What if my relationship was that every time I left the house and, and left her behind, I never brought her up publicly? In fact, what if a, a lot of my friends and, and my co-workers weren't even sure that I was married? Every time the topic comes up, I avoided it. I turn to sports. I turn to something else. I just make excuses. And they think I'm married because they know that I have a house and I've got a family. And they seem to get a glimpse of my wife and family. But they're not sure. And if I never bring her up in conversation to anyone, how would that make Lou feel? Well, of course, humanly, we get it. Nothing would break a woman's heart more than just to realize that you're just to stay at the house, out of sight, out of mind. And no one outside the home is going to know about your relationship. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. You set me apart as Lord of your life. I own you. 
If you say you believe in God, I believe Jesus is Lord, but you live a life that's ashamed of me or my words? He goes, let me tell you, I'm ashamed of that life. I'm ashamed of you. I didn't say it, Jesus did. And relationally, we get it. How much I talk about, about Lou because of the difference that she's made in my life. How much I talk about her all the time because of who she is and, and what she means to me. And, that, and, and she's a mere woman that I'm married to. That pales in comparison to the creator of the universe who owns me, who's given me eternity and salvation. She's simply a daughter of the king. Jesus is the king himself. And Jesus goes, yes, I'm making that statement. You set me apart as Lord of your life, all of it, ownership, exclusive, absolute authority, rights to all of you. And there will be a time where you need to share that and speak it because it has made a difference in your life. And Peter runs to that. He says, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. Second note here. Live a life that begs a question. Live a life that begs a question. Peter goes, if you set apart Christ as Lord of your life, then people are going to start asking about it. He assumes, he knows if we're really living as people who are owned by God and his word, you're going to be different, and people are going to notice that difference. People are going to notice that Christians are different. And Peter says, in this culture, if, if he's set apart as Lord, you're no longer Lord of your life. People will ask a question, so you need to be ready. Are you different enough from the world that people around you that it's obvious to them that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? There's going to be questions about it. Why do you do this? Why do you go there? Why don't you do this? What's different about you? You see, your life is already asking a question. You just have to ask yourself, which question is my life going to ask? Is it a surprise that you call yourself a Christian when you live and act no different from everybody else that doesn't know the Lord? Or is your life set apart because you have a Lord over everything? Your life, you, you live it according to what he's taught and what he asks you to do. In this day and age, that will make it quite obvious. You do things differently when it comes to how you love others. Your generosity, your marriage, your family, your singleness, your, your sexuality. You see yourself as truly managing a part of someone else's kingdom, not owning any of it yourself. And Peter sits down and he says, Church, listen, 30 years ago, I blew this one big time. I thought I was destined to hell. I don't think there was any hope for a guy that curses Jesus at the time he's being beaten. And I was the one that was mentioned by name and given a second chance. I've been the one that's been doing this for 30 years. And before I die, he sits down and he starts to write, here's how to make sure if you're ever in the same situation, live a life where you have a Lord. My assumption is then that, that that's a life that's going to beg a question. And when the questions are asked, here's how you answer it. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Number three, give our hope an answer to anyone who asks. Give your hope an answer to anyone who asks. And this is where some of us may start checking out. This is where we get down to people going, oh, well, that's for preachers. That's for evangelists. That's, that's for the professional Christians. 
There's a big word in Christianity called apologetics. And it simply means speaking in defense of your faith. Speaking in defense of your faith. How to give answers, how to give reasons for what you believe. And every time we hear big words like apologetics, we think that's for others, for those other people. And that's not what Peter's saying at all. Peter's saying every Christian can do it and every Christian should do it. And there's three things that I want you to write down in your life notes that we need to understand about this. The first is be prepared. How many Boy Scouts out there, okay? Simple, right? You got it. Be prepared. But we've got to be strategic. Girl Scouts will include you too, okay? We've got to be strategic about this. Live a life that's different because we have a Lord, and in that, be prepared. Somebody, someplace, somebody's going to, they're going to ask you about it. Why do you go along with the, the company policy of doing things in a, you know, shady way? Why didn't you treat the client this way? Why did you give the money back? Why did you make it a win-win situation? How come you didn't do blank? Why aren't you doing blank? When you go out, you don't usually, you fill in the blank. There's going to be something, it's going to come up, and you have to be prepared. You have to go, i got to be strategic for when this comes up. Our job as Christians is to be salt and light. And this is how the church spreads. This is how the good news spreads. God's going to bring someone into your life that needs him. God doesn't zap people into the kingdom. God doesn't just zap people to where they become Christians across our culture. He brings somebody that needs God in their life, in their marriage, in their finances, in their health, in their fears, in their addictions. And somebody is going to be next to you in life. And when you're living life with your Lord, he's going to have them bump into you. And that bumping is going to result in a conversation. And you've got to be ready to say something. Be prepared. And so you say, well, prepare for what? I'm not, I'm not good at this, Walt. I'm not good at memorizing the Bible or scripture verses or anything. Well, well number two, be prepared to give reasons. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reasons for the hope that you have. And you say, well, well, I don't know chapter and verses. Sometimes I can find stuff, but I'm not good with that kind of stuff. And Well, consider the story of, of my cousin, Brownlow North. Just kidding, he's not my cousin, but I thought with a name like North, he's got to be related. <laughs> Brownlow North was born in 1810 in England. And from 1810 to 1854, this guy was what we would have called a hellion. He was a drinker. He was a gambler. He loved to ride the countryside. He loved to hunt. He was a man's man. He was just living out his life every way he wanted to. And Brownlow North had a friend, though, that was a Christian. And from time to time, he was interested in sitting with this friend and finding out, why are you following all that Jesus stuff? And one night over dinner, Brownlow North just happened to ask him, okay, when I pray, at times God doesn't answer me. Why is that? And his friend simply looked at him and said, Brownlow, it's because every time you pray, it's for God to help the life that you're living. God doesn't want to help the life that you're currently living. He wants your life. And it's that simple statement, but man, it hit Brownlow right between the eyes. And at the age of 44, Brownlow North had this incredible conversion in his life where he gave up everything he was about and doing and started to follow Jesus. And here's what he started to find out. As with most gamblers, drinkers, hunters, fishermen, um, he can tell a good story. 
And when Brown Lenore started telling the story about his life and what God was doing, people started listening. And people started inviting Brownlow to share. He started learning a little bit about Scripture and learning about God. And, but his stories were outgrowing his education, and people were asking him to share his testimony. So he was invited to a big church back where he grew up. And he was all excited about going back home and, and sharing. He had his message planned, and, and during one of the first songs, a piece of paper hit him on the shoulder and falls into his lap. And he picks it up, and he looks over, and there's this gray-haired lady that was sitting behind him. And so she just glared at him. He opened up the paper, and he started reading it. It said, Dear Mr. North, how dare you come back here to our house of the Lord? If you set one foot on our pulpit, I will stand up and let the church know everything I know about you. And there it had bullet points, things he did as a teenager in his 20s, in his 30s, as a young man, and it was signed with her name. Well, the song finished, and Brownlow me merely walked up on the stage. He got behind the pulpit, and he said, I was going to start with a sermon today. Instead, I'd like to read you a letter. And he read the letter word for word, and he held it up at the end, and he goes, every single word of this is true. And I could fill in even more details about it. He said, instead, I want to tell you about the God that has forgiven me of my freedom from it, and how you can find him too. And the church sat silent except for one lady who got up and went out the back door. And then he shared his story. He gave the reasons that he became a Christian. He gave the reasons why he was following Jesus. Be prepared. Give reasons. Thirdly, be personal. You, you are all the testimony that you need to know. I don't care how many verses you've read or memorized. I don't know how many Christian biographies you've read. I don't care that you can debate science or creationism or evolution. I don't care that you can speak on the historicity of the Bible or the evidence of the crucifixion and the resurrection. You are the only story that you need. Be personal. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. This is your story. Be prepared to share it. We call it giving testimony. Now, that's a judicial term. In court, when someone's called to give testimony, there's things they can and can't do, and testimony in court is governed by what's called an evidence code. Every state has an evidence code, and the federal government has an evidence code, and that gives you the parameters of what is credible, of what is reliable for a witness to share. And everything has to fall within the evidence code. Otherwise, you're going to hear the opposing attorney say what? I object, Your Honor. So what are the objections to someone giving testimony? Well, the main one that you hear all the time, the main one is hearsay. You can't say what someone else told you, what you heard someone else say. That's hearsay. Now, there are exceptions to that, but that's the hearsay rule. The court doesn't want to know what someone else told you they saw or heard. They want to know what you saw, what you heard. Another is lack of foundation. If you start to tell about an event that you were not physically part of, there's a lack of foundation. You can't tell a story unless you can put yourself into the story. Then the court wants to know, okay, where, where were you? What time was it? What was your perception of it? What was the visibility? How close were you to the scene? You have to be in it, otherwise your testimony lacks foundation. Another grounds for objection is speculation. 
Speculation is when someone starts giving something that's not personal. They start assuming, they start drawing out conclusions of their own, unless, of course, if they're an expert witness, those guys and gals get, get to draw conclusions. Speculation is where you're guessing, you're trying, well, I think this is probably what happened. No, that doesn't cut it. The court doesn't want your, your, your guesses or, or your assumptions. And that's what we're talking about today. Live a life that, that begs a question. And when you live a life where he's Lord, people are going to ask, and in the midst of that, be prepared to give reasons and make it your testimony. What I mean is don't start asking, well, my pastor once said, or, or Walt said, or my Bible study leader said, that's hearsay. Make it personal. Tell about your own personal experience. What has God done in your life? If you've ever been on a jury, you know that that right as they dismiss you to go into deliberation, they give the jury instructions. The judge gives the charge to the jury on everything that you've heard in the trial and what you have to do with it now. And one of the jury instructions says this, the testimony of one witness that you believe to be credible is sufficient proof for any fact. All it takes is one witness that you think is credible. In our court system, that's sufficient proof for a particular fact. One witness for a life sentence or an acquittal. One. And Peter writes, I was ready for the high priest to be standing next to Jesus. And it was a seventh grade girl who tripped me up. Who said, aren't you one of them who follow him? It was a crowd in the courtyard who recognized my speech as being different. And when they asked about it, I tried to put on a fake accent and changed my speech. And 30 years later, he writes, live a life that begs questions. Be prepared to tell them. You want to know facts? Here's facts. She used to hate me, and now she likes it when I hold her hand. It's been three years, and I like going home again. Here's facts. Here's how I used to see my job and and do my business, treat my employees or treat my boss. Here's how I see it today. Here's the facts. Here was my life when I was Lord. Here's my life now that I've made Jesus Lord. You ought to come listen and check it out. Here's facts. If someone says, why is your life different? You're going to say, you got time for a cup of coffee? And you'll sit down with them and unfold for two hours the most amazing biblical study from Old Testament and New Testament to your life and to God. And you're amazing. And so many of us may say, well, I think mine's going to take like five seconds. My life used to suck, now it doesn't. That's what he's done. Let's be honest. Which one of those testimonies is a better testimony? They're both equal because someone that's asking you is going to see you as a credible source. And that's all it takes is one witness who's credible that the person asking will believe. Here's who I used to be. Here's who I am. Here's why. Here's what's changed. Here's how my actions have changed. Here's how my spending has changed. How my marriage has changed. I feel better about life. I sleep like a baby at night. You ought to come check it out. That's a testimony that is ironclad. And it amazes me. At the end of those 40 days of of Jesus being out of the tomb with them, he takes them up on a mountainside. And he says, guys, I have all the power on heaven and on earth. And I wonder if the hair on the back of their neck was was rising when he he said that one, okay, what's he going to do? What's he going to do next? He goes, here's my plan. You go do it. You go do it. 
you be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Samaria and into the uttermost ends of the earth. They're going to ask you a question, and you tell them, what about your life has changed? That's the church. That is God's plan A for the world. There is no plan B. And just when you're armed with the truth and, and ready to go beating people up with it, Peter adds this. We're not done yet. Peter adds this. But do this, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Last and number four, Peter says, our attitude is just as important as our words. You do this with gentleness and with respect. You do this with respect to their lifestyle, to their choices, to their religion, to their beliefs, to their preferences. Not necessarily agreement, but with respect. You do it with gentleness and respect, and you share the truth. Where do we get Peter's story of failure? Mark chapter 14. Well, who was Mark? Well, he had his own failures. Most of you probably know from the book of Acts when he left Paul high and dry on a mission trip. But then Peter took him under wing. And Mark was the young man that walked with Peter for all of his preaching and his teaching and penned the gospel. Where do we get Peter's failure? From Peter himself. He said, print that, Mark. That's where I was. Let me tell you where I ended up. And let me tell you, if you're ever called into question, as you should be, here's how to give an answer. Because there's somebody around your life who needs Jesus. And Jesus isn't walking the streets anymore in the flesh. He now does it in us and through us. And when we set him apart as Lord, he will bring that somebody into your life. And you will bump into each other and there'll be a question and you'll have everything you need to answer because your life is different from when you were Lord to now when Jesus is Lord. And you share that. And the testimony of one witness who is seen as credible is sufficient to prove any fact. You're not just in the kingdom. You're not just allowed to be part of the kingdom. You're on the front lines of greeting others into the kingdom. And our life has to show it, and we need to be ready to answer the question when it comes. Amen. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day!